This is the Memory Pass. I'm Nate DeMeo. There are two ways to interpret the story. And it's your call which way you want to go. I can't help you choose. He murdered his wife. Or he didn't. Sam Shepard met Marilyn Reese at Cleveland Heights High. She was a senior. He was a junior. And they were beautiful. She went off to Skidmore College. He went out to California to med school. And they found they couldn't be apart. And they were married in 1945. All post-war promise. They had a son. They called him Chip. And they settled down back home in Ohio. In a house by the water. Living what they had grown up believing was the dream. On the eve of the 4th of July, 1954. The Indians game in the radio. Some day early fireworks flashing over the Cleveland skyline. Shimmering red and blue and white off Lake Erie. A picture postcard of mid-century middle America. Tack it to your wall. And see it there. That perfect house in the lake. A perfect family. On a perfect midsummer's night. Because it's the last clear picture we're going to get. They were entertaining that night. Their neighbors came over for dinner and drinks and left at some reasonable hour. Then the shepherds watched a movie on TV for a while until Sam nodded off and Marilyn put Chip to bed and then herself. And either Sam went upstairs and brutally murdered Marilyn while their son slept or he awoke to cries for help, rushed to the bedroom and found a shadowy figure assaulting his wife. Either his injuries to his shoulders, to his back, to his neck, came when that shadowy figure struck him from behind, or they came from his wife while she was fighting for her life, fighting her husband, or they were self-inflicted as Sam tried to hide what he'd done. Either two of Marilyn's teeth were broken when a stranger came up behind her and put his hand over her mouth and she jerked away, or it was her husband's hand and he came from the front. Either way, either Sam chased down the intruder, ran out of the house and into the darkness, fought him in the sand, in the lake, in the dead of night, moon on the water. This man who'd killed his wife tried to wrestle him to the ground, tried to kill that man who killed his wife. Or there was no man. And there was no struggle. In the shirt Dr. Shepard said he must have lost there in the liminal space in the beach in the dark fighting the man whose face he couldn't remember was blood-stained and damning and he threw it into Lake Erie or somewhere else where it could never be recovered. Before he called his neighbor, just past dawn on the 4th of July, and said, get over here quick. I think they've killed Marilyn. And he was lying. Or he was not. A jury found him guilty. No one can be sure if they were right. Shepard's defense at times seemed preposterous. The prosecution's case at times seemed corrupt. The whole thing was a circus. The investigation, the trial, the media jumping on every twist, making detectives and neighbors and bereaved family members and Sam Shepard's young mistress household names. It was O.J. before O.J. It was the Lindbergh baby all over again. The public went crazy for all of it, as we do. Facts, fabrications wild speculation. Sam Shepard spent 10 years in prison. 
That part of the story is certain. That happened to him, whether he killed his wife or he didn't. He was sentenced to life, but his young defense attorney, F. Lee Bailey, got him out, convinced the Supreme Court of the United States that the first trial wasn't fair, that the media circus and a biased judge meant the jurors couldn't possibly be impartial. So there was a second trial, and there was reasonable doubt, and Sam Shepard was free. It was 1966. He was 42 years old. He was internationally famous. He was a widower or a murderer. His son, who was seven on the night his mother was killed while he slept in the bedroom next door, was a teenager now. He barely knew his father. Dr. Sams, that's what they always called him in the papers. He was on his 12th year of being Dr. Sam in the papers. Own parents had died. He'd become estranged from his brothers, who'd given a decade of their lives up to court appearances and prison visits until something just broke. He was married. A woman had become obsessed with him during the trial and wrote to him and flew all the way from Germany to meet him. They had a wedding three days after his release, and the public didn't like that much. Didn't like that she was a divorcee. Didn't like that her half-sister was Nazi propaganda minister Joseph Goebbels' wife. Didn't like any of it. And Sam Shepard tried to go back to his career. Tried to stop being Dr. Sam from the papers and just be a doctor. He had practiced medicine in prison, managed a team of nurses, he assisted in surgeries, saved some lives. But the big hospitals in Cleveland wouldn't have him, not full time. He was never going to be the head of a department. He was never going to be allowed back into that orbit where he had once shined so bright. He went into private practice in Gehanna, a little town on Big Walnut Creek outside Columbus. And he struggled. Patients stayed away, at least the ones who could afford to go elsewhere. He got divorced. He drank too much. It's unclear which came first. So picture him there, mid-40s, hair mostly gone, stocky and prison fit, if a little puffy around the eyes from the booze and the pills he would prescribe himself, clicking off the lights after another slow day at work, heading home to his small apartment. He who used to live in that picture postcard, tacked to the wall. That perfect house in the lake. Perfect family on a perfect midsummer's night. Before he ripped that postcard to shreds. Or had it ripped from his hands. Now tack something else to the wall. Or to a telephone pole on a city street or the bulletin board in the men's locker room at a YMCA, tape it up to the window of a barbershop, and picture it there, a poster, printed on the cheap, bold block letters. Big Time Wrestling, August 9th, Waverly High School Gym, with the Black Panther facing off against Farmer Miller, a tag team match featuring the Iron Russians, with the great George Strickland, and Dr. Sam Shepard. For two years, one of the most famous most infamous men in America, wrestled. Its most famous murderer, or its most famous victim of justice gone wrong, was a professional wrestler, on cards with men called the Sheik and Porky the Pig, the Stomper, Hell's Angel Number 1, Blackjack Murphy, Bobo Brazil, the Mighty Igor, with women with dwarfism, going by Little Miss Muffet and Little Darling Dagmar, the so-called queens of the Lady Midget Wrestlers. Faced with the choice of a diminished life, lived out quietly in a modest corner of Ohio, on a bend of a creek, 
in the ever-waning shadow of his own past, Sam Shepard chose the lights of high school gymnasiums, of union halls, of veterans' memorial auditoriums in minor cities and mid-sized suburbs. I mean, he had always loved wrestling. Did in high school, did it in prison. They had a team there with uniforms and everything. But that was Greco-Roman, with points and rules and referees. This was professional wrestling, with villains and heroes and heel turns and finishing holds and figure fours and fights fixed by design, settled before the start. And he was a doctor. He had patience. Not a lot, but he helped people. He paid his bills. So he didn't have to say yes when a promoter named George Strickland, a wrestler himself, pitched him on the idea. And he could have just stopped after that first night in Waverly, Ohio, in the packed bleachers, banners for the Waverly High Tigers hanging from the rafters, smoke-filled and humid on a late summer night, when he beat Wild Bill Shoal, as planned, surely. He could have just stopped after that night when he told the reporters who came, never came, who'd never deigned to write about wrestling, this sport that was not a sport, this drama that wasn't theater, if it weren't for Dr. Sam, if it weren't to provide their readers the strangest answer they'd ever heard to the question, where are they now? He told the reporters that everything in his life had prepared him to defeat that larger man that night. The wrestling he'd done in prison, both on the mat and in the yard, in the dark corners, protecting himself. And his medical training, his mastery of anatomy, that taught him precisely where to strike the body, and inspired an innovation, supposedly the first new wrestling hold introduced in 10,000 years, the mandible claw, in which he forces his fingers into his opponent's mouth and pushes down on the soft spot beneath his tongue and forces him to submit. But he said he was probably done after this one match. He wanted to concentrate on his patience. He'd raise some money for charity. And now it was back to his life and out of the spotlight. But he went back into the ring. Maybe he liked the lights. Maybe he liked the physicality, like the challenge. Maybe he liked the certainty, the predetermined outcomes, the way that morality in wrestling is clear. The hero follows the rules. The villain reveals himself the moment he strikes when his partner distracts a referee or wields the broken bottle, the hidden razor, or the folding chair. The crowds, they may have come to see a murderer, may have come to curse the famous killer, but in the ring, Sam was David, a balding doctor, taking down some Goliath with his brains, with his knowledge of the body, with his signature move, inspired by his diligent study of textbooks and classroom cadavers a lifetime before. Maybe the crowds left disappointed. Maybe the man in the ring didn't match the man in their heads, whichever they decided he was when they read about him for all those years. Maybe they thought it was real. The promoters, the wrestlers, the magazine, that kid on the corner always swore it was. But you heard it was fake. But it sure looked real. It sure looked like it hurt like hell. Only the man in the ring really knows. And so they sat in the bleachers, peanut shells, and spilled beer at their feet, 
in Cobo Hall in Detroit. It's CIO Local 711 in Mansfield, Ohio. In that liminal space between knowing and not knowing. Between belief and doubt. And they watched Sam Shepard wrestle. Watched him grapple and punch and kick and claw as he had done on the beach by the lake with the man who had killed his wife or he had done in his own bedroom to his wife. They watched not knowing what was happening inside him, what was driving him, what his drinking and the pills were doing to his liver, or that it would kill him in a matter of months. Or if he thought of that night, that perfect midsummer's night, when he killed his wife, or he didn't, The Memory Palace is produced by me with uh, production assistance from Kathy Two and research assistance from Andrea Milne. And if you haven't heard, The Memory Palace is doing some live shows. I am going to be telling some stories in Toronto, Milwaukee, Chicago, and Minneapolis during the week of May 16th. I'm very excited about it. And uh, I hope you'll come out. You can head to thememorypalace.us or thememorypalace.org. I own both domains. And click on events for tickets. Uh, you can also find tickets there, too, for a special one-night-only show here in L.A., um, Radiotopia Live, where 10 of the Radiotopia shows, including yours truly, will perform. I'm going to be doing a brand-new site-specific story that's never going to be repeated on that night, May 4th. So I hope you can make it out to one of those shows. The Memory Palace is a proud member of Radiotopia from PRX. We are supported by you, the listeners, by the Knight Foundation, by our advertisers, including MailChimp, which celebrates creativity, chaos, and teamwork. And if your company would like to advertise in the Memory Palace, hit me up, drop me a line. We'd love to talk to you. Back in a couple weeks. Thanks for listening.